Oh, good evening, everyone. Was I really so bad last week? <laughs> no, no hard feelings. <laughs> but Galatians chapter 4 tonight, it's actually the most difficult passage in the, in the letter from verse 21 to verse 31. So with any luck, I mean, I'm sorry, we could miss that bit out maybe tonight, but we'll, we'll see how we get on. Galatians 4. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave. Though he owns the holy state, he is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set out by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather, are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weakened, miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You have done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always and not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. Tell me, <clears throat> you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a promise. These things may be taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free. And she is our mother, for it is written, 
Be glad, O barren woman who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does the Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Thanks for the welcome. Good to be here. Kathy White was some character. <laughs> when, when Jim was, he was singing, we used to sing in the Scottish Baptist Singers. Kathy came over and the first church was in Ayr Baptist Church. And one winter's night she said to them, very cold tonight, she said, uh, I almost put on my pants. <laughs> and the whole place collapsed. <laughs> and she came to, to uh, Kirkintilloch. And I had a student, he was a, a very strange student. Uh, when we moved him into the manse, we got him into Brunton Scott's manse. The first thing he brought in was a big model of a Dalek. That was the most important thing to him. And he, he brought his, his stuff in the back of a trailer. And uh, he had all the Doctor Who videos from the year dot. And he collected gangster movies of the 30s. And uh, he stayed in one room because he was scared they would get burgled and they would steal his videos. And <laughs> he's an amazing man. And uh, I used to take him out visiting in the afternoon. And uh, he would fall asleep regularly in people's houses. And when I was off, my day off, I used to give him a list of folk to visit and a wee map and a wee sort of biographical detail about them. And he always got lost. He was <laughs> in amazing. And this lady said to me, one, See that man, George, if he hadn't mentioned your name, I wouldn't have let him in. He was standing sweating outside my door. And then he took off his big hat. And he took off this woolly thing that he was wearing. And then he took off his... I wondered when he was going to stop, she says. <laughs> and so it went on, you know. And then one day... Gene was very kind. He couldn't make anything out of Gene at all. But Gene fed him every day at lunchtime. And uh, this day completely had, had been out with him uh, visiting. And I said to Gene, he suddenly came alive today. She said, oh, what happened? I said, he met Kathy White. <laughs> and oh, he went off his jump. And he... Uh, he did a thing he'd never done before. He picked up a dish towel and dried a plate. And I said to him, have you ever had a girlfriend? And he said, no, but I danced around my bedroom all night last night. <laughs> and he fell for Kathy, but I don't think Kathy fell for him somehow. But uh, with some tremendous memories of Kathy. And uh, she was very nice to him, she was very kind. But. Uh, he never got married. <clears throat> anyway, that's another story. Uh, we're at the Galatians 4, and uh, we've been spending a lot of time reminiscing over the last week or two uh, because we were on holiday last week and just remembering some of our adventures through the years. 
Um, so Paul has been talking to them about the fact that they're no longer slaves, they are sons. And chapter 4 is a kind of PS to what happened at the end of chapter 4. Remember, um, you belong to God, you belong to Christ, you belong to each other, and you belong to history. Remember the end of last week, perhaps some of you, one or two of you might remember. Anyway, <laughs> it continues on, and it talks about uh, the imagery of the heir as a child, but in actual fact, in terms of his clout, is is not like a son at all. He's like a slave, um, and he's, uh, he's subject to guardians and trustees. And then um, the time comes when he becomes fully-fledged son. And he says, so also when we were children in the faith, um, before we even became in the faith, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. And then he's got a wonderful passage, a great passage for Advent, isn't it? Verse 4. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law. The work of redemption accomplished <clears throat> was accomplished by God's perfect redeemer. And the time has fully come. There are actually two words for time in the New Testament. One is chronos, from which you get chronometer and so on. Chronos is clock time. And kairos is opportune time. And here we are. Um, this was opportune time. When the time had fully come, um, God's timing was perfect for the coming of the Savior. The Jews, for example, they were utterly bereft and bankrupt spiritually. Um, the land had been right through history, either a land bridge or a buffer state or a political football um, being booted around by the big powers like Egypt, Syria, Assyria, Babylon. And they'd known a terrible amount of suffering they were the prey of the superpowers. And then the only respite periods they have were two, two respite periods. One during the reign of David and Solomon. That was Israel's golden years. And then later on, during the reign of Jeroboam II in Israel and Isaiah <clears throat> um, and Judah, they had a period of respite there. They're the only two periods in their whole history when they weren't being persecuted and knocked about. Um, but at the latter part of the history, before the time of the Lord Jesus, they were under the rule of the high priests. And it turned out the high priests were worse rulers than the foreign conquerors. In fact, one of them had three of his fellow Jews, 3,000 of his fellow Jews crucified. One of the high priests, would you believe it? But God's knew the time when the time had fully come and as far as the Greeks were concerned um, the period of, of Greek dominance was over by the third century but they had a rich culture but a bankrupt philosophy, a decadent drama, it was full of sex and violence um, and the, the Greeks were the kind of people that poisoned Socrates you know, they said he was corrupting the young and they made him take hemlock. 
and he, he, he died. But the great thing about the Greeks was, first of all, their language. Greek language was vital in the spread of the gospel. And the city-state system uh, was a great boon to the civilization of the Middle East, definitely. But God had his timing. The Greek language would be the way of spreading the written word of God throughout the whole of the, the Mediterranean world. Um, <clears throat> and then the Romans, they were in total control. The Roman Empire controlled the Mediterranean world in the time of our Lord, in the time of Paul. Land and sea. Uh, the Mediterranean Sea was full of pirates. <clears throat> uh, in fact, when Julius Caesar was a kid, he was kidnapped by pirates. And they held him to ransom. His father had to, buy a, to pay a ransom for him. And this wee kid said to all these guys that had him captive, he said, my father will pay the ransom, and after he pays the ransom and I go home, I'll come back and have you all killed. And they looked at this kid and sort of laughed at the idea. Well, he went home. His father paid the ransom. He went home, got a... a a group together of military folk. They went back to the island and he did what he promised these men. And the Romans cleared the Mediterranean Sea of pirates. This meant that Paul could travel in an Alexandrian grain ship across the Med without being troubled by pirates. And the roads, well, every Roman soldier was a sapper. He carried not only a sword, but a shovel. And the Roman soldiers built the roads. They built over 50,000 miles of roads. And the gospel went along these roads with the wonderful postal system that they had. Probably better than ours just now. But that's, that's part of God's timing. That the whole world was nominally at peace. The Pax Romana spread throughout the Mediterranean world. But they, they were corrupt in the religion as well. They had a, a religion that was especially dear to the, the military folk called Mithraism, with a whole lot of degrading, horrible initiation ceremonies and stuff like that. And God's timing was perfect. It was God's timing and it was God's touch. He sent his son. Tells in verse 4, But when the time had fully come, God sent his son. Words of one syllable. Don't uh, complain about that. The Lord Jesus summarized his mission in words of one syllable. The son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And Paul summarized his life in words of one syllable. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so God's answer was in a baby. <laughs> Imagine a baby, weak, vulnerable baby, apparently at the whim of innkeepers um, and King Herod and various other folk. And, you know, God's answers in a baby. His answer was a baby in the time of Moses, and his answer was a baby in the time of the Lord Jesus. Um, and nowadays... They would trust in the Kalashnikov rather than the cradle. <laughs> but the Lord's answer was in a baby. F.W. Borum in his Christmas book tells the story of Ro Roaring Camp 
of how there in the Yukon, in this spit and sawdust pub, they, they found a baby wrapped in newspaper one night, and uh, somebody offered to crochet a mat for the baby. Somebody offered to make a rosewood cradle for the baby. They were worried about the baby catching a disease, and they cleaned up the whole filthy pub uh, in this gold rush town. And the saying went out, nothing has been the same. Everything has changed since the baby came. That's what we believe in the gospel. God's answer was in a baby. God's timing, God's touch, God's target that we might be born free, that we might receive, verse 5, the full rights of sons. That's marvelous. Tremendous passage. And then he reverts to the slavery image from verse 8 onwards. Um, he recaps on the slavery interest. Um, and he says, do you want to become slaves again? Do you want to revert to your old, your old superstitious practices? He says, I fear that for you somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. And then he launches into a passage from verse 12 to 20. And in that passage, he's talking about pastor and people. Paul was a people person. I became like you. He says, I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. There's a lovely passage in Thessalonians. In, in chapter 2, he said, For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. We speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. And when he, he moved amongst communities, he was a, a tent maker, and he made his living by tent making, so that no one could say, he's in it for the money, you know? He's in it for the money. Um, but he was among them. He wasn't there terribly long, but he got attached to all these congregations. And I suppose when you think about it, pastor and people relationship is like courtship. I often think of every Baptist, and I pray for you and your pastor in this present situation. But it's a bit like courtship, getting to know you, isn't it? How long has Ross been here? Seven, eight years, is it? Getting to know all about you. And the great thing about being in the ministry, I can tell you this from the bottom of my heart, it's great to be loved by the people that you work for. That is absolutely wonderful. That's the greatest thrill of ministry, to be loved by the people you work for. Um, a man in the congregation at Inverness one day said, you're having a hard time, Pastor. I said, ah, we're okay, don't worry about us, you know. And he said, well, I've got a sister in the family, they call her the Ayatollah. Uh, she's a tough lady. She's got an apartment in Cyprus, and I'm going to buy you and Jean air tickets, and you have to go to her apartment for a fortnight holiday in Cyprus. What do you think of that, eh? Wonderful. He was kind. He used to, the week before Christmas, I would come home from visiting, and 
I don't know that ministers visit nowadays. You know, some of them have foot and mouth disease. They can't preach and they won't visit. But <laughs> I would come home from visiting, and here's a bundle of money behind the door. No notes, no cards, no fancy stuff. Just a hundred pound the week before Christmas for our Christmas. Wasn't that kind? Wonderful. Um, endless patience. Um, between pastor and people getting to know one another. You know, when that man died, let, let's divert a wee while. When, when that man died, we went to his funeral. And we got uh, the gold bus. You ever travel on the gold bus, Stenverness? Wonderful stuff. And then we got a taxi to go up to the funeral because they had recognized there would be more folk there that would fill, than would fill Inverness Baptist Church. But we had no trouble finding the funeral. He took us up the hill, and it was in the biggest parish church in Inverness, and the queue was about five deep for a quarter of a mile from the church. The main church seated 650, and there were two uh, halls, one seating 500, another seating 250, and there were folk outside as well to Malcolm's funeral. And he was a terrific man. A wonderful man. He always gave the back seat sweeties every Sunday. And when he was too weak to sit in the seat, when he was dying of cancer, he used to sit in the gallery and throw sweeties over. <laughs> An amazing man. And so Paul, he got wrapped up with these people uh, in the Galatian church. Um, and it was a position where he was loved by the people he worked for. He says here, he would have taken out your eyes and given them to me. Some folk assume therefore that his thorn in the flesh was an eye disease like trachoma or something like that. He said, you will have taken out your own eyes and given them to me. What a wonderful relationship. And he was in a position of trust with them. And he would be working night and day for them, making tents and ministering. At the same time, he wasn't filling in a timesheet. Um, and we found that in, in ministry through the years. I mean, this, this week, for example, <laughs> we were spent the whole afternoon in a hospital, and it was, be, it was beyond tea time, and Jean said, we'll get a fish supper and half it between us. So I went in to get a fish supper, and here's a man, absolutely blotto drunk, and I said, hello, David, how are you doing? And he immediately hailed me as a long-lost friend. <laughs> And he was drunk as a skunk. And I couldn't get away from him. And I said, come on, I'm going to take you home. And he, oh, you couldn't. I said, I'm taking you home. Why? Why are you doing that? I said, well, number one, I'm not sure you would cross that road alive. And number two, you're my pal and I want to help you, you know. So he got in the car and Gene thought, I dropped Jean off, she had to walk home a bit of the, the way, and I dropped him off, um, and I dropped him at the right side of the road for him not to get killed crossing the road. And I came home about maybe three quarters of an hour later, the, the fish supper was cold, but we had to re managed to reheat it, and she said to me, I thought I was going to get eaten alive again for coming in late, you know? <laughs> And she said, you had to do that, hadn't you? She said, you couldn't leave him like that. So we had to do that 
for Davy. See, Maggie died three years ago and he's been absolutely prostrate with grief for the last three years. So pastor and people, Paul and the Galatians, um, charlatans couldn't speak like Paul says in verse 12, I, be, I plead with you brothers to become like me for I became like you, you have done me no wrong. Wonderful. No condescending tone here. Just honesty from the heart. And probably stressful as well, because if he had trouble with his eyes, um, that would bring stress. You know, there's two kinds of stress in life. There's, there's you stress and distress. You know, you stress is good stress. There's a, a stress that's healthy, like a violin string producing a beautiful sound. But there's distress. And uh, distress gets us up tense and troubled and worried. Um, and the Lord doesn't want us to be like that. The Lord wants us to know his peace every day. And we have to get involved. When Gordon Thompson moved into Drum Chapel Baptist, you know what they did to him the first month he was there? They spray-painted the bonnet of his car with a cross. <laughs> and his, his pals were going to help him clean up his car. He says, no, leave it. <laughs> he says, by the end of the month, everybody will know who the Baptist minister is. <laughs> Free advertising. <laughs> and I read, I read a sermon by Alexander White, and um, I've summarized, I've, I've paraphrased it. Um, he said, if you want to clean up the street, you'll never clean up the street standing at the end of it with a spray can and aerosol saying, be thou clean. <laughs> he said, if you want to, t to clean up the street, you'll have to get involved with the filth. And that's the situation that Paul found himself in. He was worn out when he came to the Galatians. And this passage reflects the help that Christians can be to a, a servant of God, a fellow Christian who's going through the mill. And Paul's goal and our goal is to see Christ formed in others. And he's not very well. He was talking about an illness in verse 14, and he's talking about eye trouble further down. You know... The servants of God are not perfect, in case you didn't notice. <laughs> but don't complain. Thomas Guthrie, uh, who founded Guthrie's Homes, a preacher who founded Guthrie's Homes for uh, wee boys and girls that were wandering the streets of Edinburgh, he said, when you receive a glorious message from a divine source, he says, don't moan about the quality of the paper it's written on. <laughs> he says, I'm just a poor servant of Christ. I'm not a perfect person at all, but I'm trying to serve Jesus. And so that's the situation between pastor and people here. It's a very intimate picture of how Paul felt about the Galatians and how the Galatians felt about him. Um, I better hurry on. The last passage, there's a whole lot of titles you could give the last passage. What use is the Old Testament? <laughs> and it, it, it takes the example of Hagar and Sarah in the Old Testament 
and he draws lessons from it. Um, because when you, if, you, if you made a wee table of it, there were two women, and there were two covenants, and there were two mountains, and there were two babies, <laughs> all in this section. Um, perhaps he was thinking of the, the Nutsi laws of Mesopotamia in terms of marriage, which in some parts of the world still pertain this kind of thing. If you got married in ancient Mesopotamia and your wife didn't produce any children, women were there to produce children, they thought, you know. And if your wife didn't have any children, it's bring on the substitute, you know. You, you were allowed to buy and get another wife and she would give you children. Um, and so sometimes slaves were used as secondary wives, as in the case of Hagar. Sarah was his, Abraham's real wife, and Hagar was the slave wife. Okay, are you with me so far? <laughs> the, the law was this, that if your slave wife produced a child and then subsequently your real wife, your first wife, produced a child, then the inheritance rights that had gone to the slave's wife's son or child would revert to your original wife's uh, child. And that's what happened, wasn't it? Because Hagar had a child, and Abraham's wife, Sarah, his first wife, his real wife, um, subsequently had Isaac when she was an old, old lady. She had Isaac. And Isaac was the child of promise. He was the child of the covenant. He was a child that God said in him all the, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And so he took over the inheritance rights. And, uh, but uh, the analogy falls down a wee bit when you examine it. Because Nutsi Law said, if your first wife produced a child, you hadn't to be cruel to the second wife. You had to keep supporting her. But we know that what happened in the, in the Genesis account was um, Abraham drove out Hagar. That's what practically happened. God must have been concerned about that because there's a narrative about how God looked after Hagar in the desert. If you read Genesis, you'll get all that. Uh, and she said, thou God seest me, remember? Um, and so, here's the message. The message is that we are not the child of slavery. We are not the child of the old covenant. We are not the child of the earthly Jerusalem. We are the children of the covenant of promise, and our citizenship is not in any earthly Jerusalem, but in the heavenly Jerusalem as Christians. And so he brings in the whole message of the idea of the Messiah. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the curse of this broken law. And so you can summarize, although this is the most difficult passage in the whole letter, it's a wonderful kind of introduction to the gospel and who we are in the light of what God has done for us through the Lord Jesus. And you can summarize the whole message of the Old Testament. First of all, <clears throat> you could say, the king will come, as the Old Testament. It's a, it's a book of anticipation. 
And then you can see, when you read the Gospels and Acts, the king has come. And then a golden thread running through Old and New Testament says, the king will come again. There's, there's a summary of the whole Bible in three phrases. The king will come, the king has come, the king will come again. That's our hope. And we are the children of promise, as Isaac was. Um, or you can have it in another way. You can say, first of all, the message of the Bible is, God is, God exists. There is a God. The Bible doesn't try to prove that God exists. The Bible assumes that God exists. God is. And the second thing is, God is love. That's one of the great slogans of the New Testament. God is love, and he's demonstrated his love in the coming of the Savior, the child of promise, at his perfect timing. Um, and the third thing is, the most precious of all to us is God loves me. God is, God is love, and God loves me. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. And I was going to read something out of the book. Professor A.M. Hunter of Aberdeen, page 124, 125, I think it is. I quite like this. So I put it in the book. Uh, where is it? A.M. Hunter, help me. Oh, aye. Um, <clears throat> Abram had two sons. Ishmael, son of the slave woman, Hagar, and Sarah had Isaac. And uh, he says, Paul aims to show from Scripture that God planned to replace the law in the old covenant of Sinai by the new covenant of freedom, which was lovely. Um, <clears throat> and he says, why is it in verse 21 they're asking, uh, they're already trying to follow the Jewish calendar and circumcision and all the old paraphernalia of Judaism. Um, and so he launches into a passage, the passage we just supposedly dealt with, which would trouble a Philadelphia lawyer, <laughs> never mind a Galatian convert. But we know we've got, at least got the drift of it, I hope, tonight, that we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. We're children of promise. We're children of the covenant. We're children who hope for a heavenly Jerusalem. And so, in the, in the start of chapter 5, next time, I don't know when that is, it's sometime next month, eh? Eh, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us throughout this day and this week. We praise you for your care over us. We thank you that in time past, you looked down the corridors of history and you planned the sending of your dear Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to be our Savior. And we thank you that he showed that God is love, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him 
should not perish but have eternal life. And he did it on a cross where he gave his life and shed his blood. And we praise you, O God, tonight that we can stand here tonight as children of the covenant, children of promise, children who have a hope in Christ. And we praise you for your help in all that we do, for your pardon of our sins and for the daily sense of your presence and for the way in which you are with us in all our relationships. We pray that you will bless us and do us good in this week. For Jesus Christ's sake. Amen.